Hey church, good morning and Merry Christmas to all of you. Glad that you're here. Let's, uh, let's do this together. Let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning as we explore a little bit further the Christmas story that you are so familiar with, but maybe, maybe there's a few aspects in Luke 2 that you're not aware of. I do wish you a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to those of you who are tuning in as well. Uh, home downstairs. Um, are you tired of Christmas yet? Or I, I don't know. It's Don Miller's house. It's like the 12 days of Christmas, I guess. I don't know. It just keeps on going. And maybe some of you are a little tired of it. We've been celebrating since Thanksgiving, Christmas. But what I want to do this morning, now that some of the you know festivities are behind us, the gifts, the baking, the eating the frivolity, I want us to focus just on the Christ of Christmas this Sunday morning, okay? And I I, I guess I do get a little tired of Christmas sometimes, but I don't get tired of the Christmas story, what we're going to look at this morning. And and specifically what I want to look at is an episode in Jesus's life that doesn't get as much attention as the other episodes. So we'll be looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38 this morning. We spoke briefly on this topic at Christmas Eve, but I want to develop this passage a little bit more this morning, okay? Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. This is that moment in Jesus' life when he's presented to the temple, and he meets with Two older saints who have some important things to say about Jesus. We'll get to that in just a moment, but let me just, let me set the context for you so we know what we're dealing with and what we're talking about here. You know, in Luke chapter 1, we get this message sent to this virgin, this young girl named Mary, that she's going to have a baby as a virgin, and it's shocking news, and we find out later that she does give birth as a virgin, and actually it, it comes about this way. There's a census that takes place in the city of Bethlehem. And Joseph, Mary's betrothed, has to go down to, to Bethlehem to be a part of this census, to be numbered, because he's a son of David. And so Joseph took his betrothed, Mary, who was very, very pregnant, And they went to Bethlehem, and she gave birth among animals in Bethlehem. And they laid that little baby, the Savior of the world, in a feeding trough, in a stable. And, I mean, these are the songs that we sing about at Christmas time. Great songs. And and this is a total understatement, but I'll just say this. You know, Jesus' birth, you know, in a stable, not finding a place for him in Bethlehem to stay, being placed in a feeding trough. His birth was very, very humble. That's an understatement. More humble than is often conveyed in the typical glossy Christmas card. And after that, you know, Jesus' birth, there's these angels that appear to shepherds. And, I mean, this is an amazing event in Luke chapter 2. I told you on Christmas Eve that they're my favorite characters in Luke 2, the shepherds. And the angels come before these shepherds, and they terrify the shepherds, and they tell them something. And they didn't sing. I know we think they sing because of Hark the Herald, angels sing. They didn't sing. They just exclaimed. 
this myriad of angels, and terrifyingly so, they told these shepherds, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And you know, the, sh the shepherds were scared spitless by all of this. It was terrifying. But now they have a mission, and they go on this mission, and they deliver this message, and they find the baby Jesus, and they find Mary, and they find Joseph, and they declare to them all these glorious things that they've been told. And it's wonderful, and it's happy, and it's a celebration, and it's, it's glorious what happens at Jesus' birth and all these concomitant events that surround Jesus' birth. I never get tired of it. I never get tired of it. And what follows these events is, honestly, it's a little more mundane than what precedes it, you know, with the angels and all that. But there's, there's still a marvel to it as Jesus later is presented at the temple. And there's some fascinating descriptions of Jesus' person, his ministry, and the passage that we're going to look at today. And what I want to do is I want to unpack that for you by giving you four descriptions of Jesus from Luke 2, 22 through 38. And then we're going to take communion. Okay? Four descriptions of Jesus from Luke 2, 22 through 38. Here's the first. The Jesus presented in this passage is a poor Jewish firstborn baby. And that might seem obvious to you, and that, that might seem unimportant, but it's not. Luke goes to a lot of trouble here to highlight these things in his infancy narrative. Here's what he says. Look at verse 22. And when the time came for their purification... According to the law of Moses, they brought him, baby Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, just to be clear, just a little historical context here. This is not Jesus' circumcision. That has already taken place. That took place in verse 21, and that's eight days after birth. Verse 22 speaks of something different. This takes place 40 days after Jesus' birth. And it takes place in Jerusalem, not in Bethlehem. So this is about a five-mile walk to Bethlehem, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. And what's described in this passage is, is two things that, that take place in the temple as fulfillment of the law of Moses. First of all, there's the purification of Mary, this new mom. This new mother would have to offer a sacrifice 40 days after giving birth, and this is according to Leviticus 12, verses 1 through 8. You can look that up on your own. This, this is something that moms had to do 40 days after giving birth to a, a baby boy. So that's taking place. But also there's a second thing. There's the presenting of Jesus. Jesus would have to be presented at the temple as the firstborn child. And this is according to Exodus 13, verse 2. And you can even see this in verse 23 as, as Luke makes reference to this. The ESV records this as a parenthetical statement. It says, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb, that is the firstborn, shall be called holy to the Lord. So what's going on here is Luke's very conscientious about pointing out the fact that Jesus' life and even the practice of his parents is perfectly in keeping with, Jew with Jewish law at that time. Perfectly in keeping with law. So Jesus' circumcision was in perfect fulfillment of the law. 
The presentation of Jesus as the firstborn was in perfect keeping with the law. The purification of Mary as Jesus' mother was in perfect keeping with the law. Now you know why Paul said in the book of Galatians that Jesus was born of woman, born of under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And speaking of the law, one of the, the provisions that's given in the law, and this is in Leviticus 12, was for those who were too poor to provide a, a lamb. It actually says in Leviticus 12, 8, that if a woman couldn't provide a lamb for her purification ritual, then she can provide two birds, a pigeon, two, two pigeons or two doves. And that's exactly what Mary did. Look at verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons can be offered. There's little signals here. Jesus is the firstborn. Mary and Joseph were poor. I mean, Joseph was a carpenter. He was a humble carpenter. It's not like he was destitute, but he, this was not a family that was well off. So they offered up birds instead of a lamb. And by the way, Jesus later would be revealed as the lamb that came to Jerusalem to die for our sins, right? So here's this ceremony in verse 24. Mary would actually lay hands on these birds, these pigeons. Then a priest would take them to the southwest corner of the altar and wring one of the birds' necks as a sin offering. And then burn the other one up as a whole burnt offering before the Lord. This was the blood that was shed in the Old Testament era, signifying the payment for sin. And this always foreshadows what ultimately comes with Jesus and his blood that was shed for our sins. So just to be clear here in this passage, Jesus is presented to us as a poor Jewish firstborn baby offered up in the temple by pious, law-abiding parents. And you might say it this way, Jesus had a very kosher upbringing. He was a kosher kid, doing what the Jewish law required of him, and also his parents. And write this down as number two in your notes. Jesus is also presented, so he's a poor Jewish firstborn baby. He's also presented here as a prepared Savior for all peoples. So Dr. Luke, he continues his narrative in verse 25. Look at this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word consolation is the Greek word paraklesis. And it's, this is Old Testament Messiah talk. Consolation, paraklesis. One of the traditional Jewish prayers is, may I see the consolation of Israel. Everybody was waiting for the consolation, consolation of Israel. Someone to console them, paraklesis. And that word paraklesis is derived from this Greek word parakaleo, which meant to comfort or to encourage, which the Hebrew word for that is nacham, which means comfort. Simeon is waiting for the comforter, the consoler, the Messiah of Israel. That's what this is talking about here. And Luke tells us, the Holy Spirit was upon him. So he's waiting for the, it is a righteous man. He's waiting for the consoler. He's waiting for the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Literally, what Luke says here is that the, the Spirit was holy upon him. Now, remember, this is, this is pre-Acts 2, okay? This is before the Spirit is poured out on all believers. 
So you might not think that's remarkable. Well, I got the Holy Spirit on me, Pastor Tony, too. No, in this era, that was a unique thing. And, and Luke is trying to point your attention to this. this. This guy was specially empowered by the Holy Spirit for a purpose. What was that purpose? Look at verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That's messianic language too. So this guy who was full of the Holy Spirit for this unique purpose was told by the Holy Spirit, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah, until you see the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Mashiach, the anointed one, the Messiah. So Simeon, Simeon had been told by the Holy Spirit that he's going to live long enough to see the Lord's Christ. And we, we don't know how long he had to wait for that. We don't, we don't know how old he is. Presumably he had to wait a long time, even until old age. So Luke says in verse 27, and he came, Simeon came in the spirit, being led by the spirit, you might say, into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, you know, these good law-abiding kosher parents. Look at verse 22. He took him up, baby Jesus, into his arms. Can you imagine? Just, let's just imagine this together. Here's this old man who's been waiting 10, 20, 30 years. I don't know how long. And all of a sudden on this day, Jesus walks in as a 40-day-old as baby. And this old man with his frail arms just kind of scoops the baby into his arms. And it's, like I said, at Christmas, it's like an impromptu baby dedication right here in the temple. And there's joy and there's excitement as he takes baby Jesus into his arms. And then he starts praising God out loud, and he blessed God with baby Jesus in his arms and a big smile on his face. Can you see him now, this old man? And he said this, Lord, now, are you, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. That's a polite way of saying, now I can die. Now I can go to the grave because I've seen the Messiah. Phil Riken, he writes about this in his commentary, and he sees a little foreshadowing of all of us in Simeon because we are like Simeon. Here's what Riken says. He says, anyone who has seen the Lord Jesus with the eyes of faith is prepared to die. Are you prepared to die? And anyone who has not seen him, whether young or old, is not ready to die at all you haven't seen him with the eyes of faith, when we see Jesus and his salvation, we are ready to be dismissed from this life in peace and enter the life to come. Is that true of you, Harvest Decatur? Young or old, male or female? Simeon says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. A 40-day-old baby. Salvation? Really? What, uh, what? This little baby? This baby? Is the one he's been waiting for? This is the son of David? This is the Messiah? This is the serpent crusher promised in Genesis 3.15? This is the suffering servant promised in Isaiah? The son of man? The son of God? Yes. This baby. This baby. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all 
peoples, prepared in the sense of being made ready. This is part of God's sovereign plan. And God has, God has prepared Jesus to be a savior for all peoples. This is God's plan of salvation. Look at verse 32. This has implications for your life, Gentile. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. Ooh, that's us. And glory to your people, Israel. Now that's messianic language too, just so you know. Because when Isaiah prophesied about the coming Messiah in the Old Testament, 700 years before Christ, by the way, he told us that he would be a savior, not just for Israel, but for all peoples. He would be a light unto the Gentiles. By the way, Harvest of Care, let me just say something right now. Your favorite prophet, you know who your favorite prophet is in the Old Testament? I'll tell you who your favorite prophet is. It's Isaiah, okay? You didn't know that, but now you do. Isaiah is your favorite prophet in the Old Testament. You know why? Because he prophesied about you Gentiles getting saved. Now, some of you might have Jewish blood, and maybe you have a different prophet that's your favorite. But for those of you who are Gentiles like me, we read Isaiah. We read things like this. This is Isaiah 49, verse 6. You can read this on the screen. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel? O Messiah, who's coming to save Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations too, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Not just good Jewish people, but also sin-stained Gentiles like you and me. Paul and Barnabas, they actually quoted Isaiah 49, verse 6, that passage right there, when they were evangelizing Gentiles in the Roman Empire. You can read about that in Acts 13, verse 47. And that's not an isolated thing. That shows up in a lot of places in Isaiah. And what's amazing about that prophecy in Isaiah, if you study historically what happened when Isaiah wrote that, you know, Isaiah wrote those words, even as these pagan Gentile kingdoms were coming in and destroying the Jewish nation of Israel. Isaiah wrote that about what you might call our forebearers, the Gentiles, the Assyrians, who came and destroyed Israel. That's amazing. And he said, someday a Messiah will come that will save even those pagan Gentiles. And now, this is amazing too, this old, pious, Jewish man is holding baby Jesus, and he's referencing Isaiah in the temple. And saying that this baby's going to save Gentiles. I mean, I wonder what the onlookers were thinking as they heard this old man. Gentiles, really? Really, Gentiles? No, come on. We don't want them saved. Simeon's getting a little senile in his old age, maybe. Look how Joseph and Mary respond. Look at verse 33. And his father and his mother. By the way, don't you love how Joseph is referred to as Jesus' father here, without any qualification. Adoptive father, but father. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about Jesus. And you know, it's not like they didn't know this already. The angel had appeared to them and told them some of these things, but wow. I mean, this is like randomly affirmed by this pious old man in the temple telling, maybe adding something that they didn't know, and they just, they just marveled at this, marveled at what Simeon told them. The Greek word for marvel here is theomazo, and it, it's the same word that's used of Joseph and Mary when they marveled at the shepherds, when they came and told them what the angels had told them. They marveled at that. They marveled at this. 
Joseph and Mary are having a, a marvelous time as Jesus' parents. They're probably feeling a little bit of pressure too. Like, oh, we're raising the savior of the world. Okay, well, let's make sure he eats his vegetables. And Jesus is presented to them and to us as not just the savior of his people, but the savior of Gentiles too, right? Isn't that good? Your room full of Gentiles? Go ahead and write this down as number three in your notes. All right, just brace yourself. Cause so, I mean, so up to this point, it's been like happy, 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 happy. Right? Merry Christmas, everybody. Well, this passage, it takes an ominous turn because Simeon, he doesn't just present Jesus as a prepared savior for the people. He also presents him as a polarizing force in Israel. And here's what he says. And, you know, I, I kind of, you guys visualize stuff when you read the Bible. I'm, I'm always trying to visualize what's going on and seeing the temple and seeing, you know, Mary and Joseph in this instance with Simeon. So I'm trying to imagine Simeon's face as he's saying these things. And at first, when he's saying all these, these glorious things, there's a big smile and he's happy and Joseph and Mary, they're smiling. And I can only imagine at this point, as Simeon turns with his prophecy that, 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 smile dissipates as he's holding Jesus in his frail little arms and in place of that smile comes a a stern sad grimace as the Holy Spirit reveals something to him about this baby and yes Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for Jesus he's the savior of his people savior even of Gentiles and yes Jesus is the paraclesis the one who will console Israel He's the one that will console Israel, but not all Israel. Not all Israel. Here's what Simeon says. Look at verse 34. And Simeon blessed them. Well, that's good. Nothing ominous about that. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mary, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Hmm. What does that mean? Can I just tell you, I've never said that at a baby dedication, never. And I don't plan to. And, and what, you know, no parent wants to hear this, and especially moms, right? Like if I did have something to say at baby dedication, I'd say it to the dad, you know? Not to mama. And notice what it says here. He, he didn't say it to Joseph. He says this prophecy directly to Mary. Why does he do that? And what does this mean that the child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel? And, and what does he mean by saying a sword will pierce through your own soul too, Mary? Is she going to die a bloody death? What is that? Is that literal? What does that mean? And, and why would you say this about a 40-day-old baby 
And why would you say this to his new mama? Who would have the gall to say this? I'll tell you who has the gall to say this. It's somebody who has been prompted by the Holy Spirit to say this. And that's exactly what Simeon is. And he's, he's been handpicked by God out of the Jerusalem populace to tell Mary this hard thing that she needs to know. And I'll, I'll tell you why he tells Mary instead of Joseph. You know, if you read the, the account of Jesus' life in Luke, you'll notice that Joseph, he, he shows up when Jesus is 12 years old and he's lost in the temple. And then after that, you never hear about Joseph again, right? You don't hear about him in any of the other gospels. You don't hear about him at Luke. And I think the best evidence is that Joseph died before any of those things happened, before Jesus started his ministry. He never saw Jesus suffer. He never saw Jesus get mistreated. He never saw Jesus get crucified. There's no mention of Joseph in any of that. You know who is mentioned when those things happen to Jesus? Mama. Mama was there. When he got mistreated, Mama was there. When he started his teaching ministry, Mama was there. When he was crucified, according to the Gospel of John. Now, here's why I call Jesus a polarizing force in Israel. So that's, I think, the sword, okay? By the way, this reference to a sword, it's, um, the Greek word is, there's two different words for sword. There's like the dagger, and then there's like the broad sword that you, you pull out of a sheath. And the word that's used here is the broad sword, piercing her soul. And so this, this is not just a little dagger. This is a long sword that cuts right to the heart of Mary, and she's going to go through deep pain watching her son die. That's what that's alluding to. But let me explain to this, this rising and this falling of Israel. I'm calling Jesus a polarizing force here because, you know, that's not just something that's mentioned by Simeon. Jesus said that about himself, didn't he? Jesus said, do you think that I came to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, not peace, but rather division. Yes, Jesus brings peace on earth. The angels declared that to the shepherds, but that is only with whom, he is, with, with whom he is pleased that have peace. Go and look at what the angel said in chapter 2, verse 14. Read this carefully. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus doesn't bring peace to everybody. In fact, Jesus brings division. The ESV study Bible, he says it this way, God's gift of peace will come not to all humanity, but to those whom God is pleased to call to himself. So there's, there's division in Jesus' ministry. There's polarization in Jesus' ministry that Simeon alludes to and that Jesus himself confirmed. I was reading a sermon about this this last week by Tim Keller, and here's what Tim Keller said, and you can read this on the screen. This is not your typical Christmas message. Keller says there's a combativeness about Christmas and the doctrine of Christmas. There's something very, very uncomfortable about it. We know that from Simeon's foreboding prophecy, but we don't put that on our Christmas card. We like to think of Christmas as a time of unifying and camaraderie and, and bringing people together. Actually, it's a time of polarization. 
And that's because Jesus came to bring peace on earth. Yeah, but how did that happen? How did Jesus bring peace on earth? Keller says this, Jesus brings peace on earth, but how? How do the allies bring peace to occupied France on D-Day? They pick a fight. How does a surgeon bring peace to your body, which has a tumor in it? The surgeon spills your blood. A surgeon cuts you open wide. That's the only way for your body to have peace. And yes, Jesus brings peace to our world. How does he do that? How does Jesus do that? He does it by spilling his blood. And not everyone is in favor of what Jesus does. Not, not everyone in Israel is supportive of Jesus. In fact, who were the most adamant detractors in Jesus' life and ministry? You might say, well, it's the Romans that put him to death, Pontius Pilate and others. Yeah, yeah. But who else was behind that? It was the Jewish leaders. It was the Jewish teachers. It was those who maneuvered behind the scenes to make that happen. And as they did that, the people of Jerusalem, what did they say? Crucify him, crucify him. And that's what Simeon's prophecy gets to, the rising and the fall of many in Israel. Some will rise, some will fall. Some will be saved, some won't be saved. Some in Israel will follow him. Think about the 12 disciples. They're all Jewish. Talk, talk about some in Israel will follow him. Yeah, most important followers. Some in Israel will follow him. Some will reject him. All of this reminds me of another place in Scripture. There's, there's a place as Paul is talking about Israel. In, in Romans 9, he talks about the stumbling stone. Y'all remember that image that we worked through? And Paul calls Jesus a stumbling stone. And actually, that's a reference to Isaiah too. And what Paul does is he, he talks about Jesus as a stone that for some becomes a rock of salvation, the foundation for their salvation. To others, he becomes the rock of stumbling. Jesus is divisive in that way. Jesus is polarizing in that way. For some, he's salvation. For others, <clears throat> they trip over him, and he's, he's their judge condemning them. So Jesus' ministry, his death, his salvation, some will embrace it, some will reject it, some will oppose Jesus, some will put their faith in him. There's a great quote by Charles Spurgeon, and he says this with reference to Christ. He says, the same sun which melts the wax hardens clay. Y'all have heard that before, right? And he, some of y'all have family members, and you're like... Why did I embrace Christ and these other people in my family that hate Jesus? What? How can that be? The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. There's an old African proverb that goes like this. The same boiling water softens the potato and hardens the egg. Which one are you? The potato or the egg? The same Jesus who some people embrace by faith for salvation, is a stumbling stone to others. And they reject Jesus to their own devastating eternal consequences. And Mary will see this. She will agonize over this. She will see the rejection of Jesus by some. And she will even see her own son put to death on a cross. And that will feel like a massive sword thrust into her soul. 
She'll see Jesus die and she'll agonize over it. And you know what? This is God's plan of salvation. And this is how Jesus saves us from our sins. And you know what? This is how Jesus saves his mother Mary from her sins. Because she's a sinner too that needs redemption. Now how do you follow that up? You know, that's quite a bombshell that Simeon drops on these new parents. It's intense. And, and you know, Thankfully, Luke circles around with a, maybe a happier story to close this out. And it involves another aged saint who worships God and comes looking for the Messiah. Go ahead and write this down as number four in your notes. Finally, Jesus is also presented in this passage as a prayer answered for redemption. So, we've seen Simeon. Now, Dr. Luke introduces another elderly saint in Jerusalem, a woman named Anna. Anna is uh, the Greek equivalent to Hannah, which means grace. So here's a woman that is named Grace. And while Simeon was waiting for the Messiah, Anna was worshiping in the temple. Look at verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. You know, Asher... Just a historical footnote here. Asher was one of the, the 10 northern tribes that was taken into captivity. And some people refer to them as the lost tribes of Israel. But they're not lost. There are still people from Asher that are in Jerusalem. So Jesus came not just to save Judah Heights, but also the, the lost tribe. There's representatives here. That's why I think Luke mentions Asher. And Luke says this about her too. She was advanced in years. Everybody see that in verse 36? That's a polite way of saying she's old. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. And there's actually a possibility here to translate this, that she was a widow for 84 years. So there's the possibility that this woman is over 100 years old coming to see Jesus. And it says she did not depart from the temple worshiping and fasting with, with prayer, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. This is, in other words, this is a devout, godly, faithful woman. This is long obedience in the same direction. And she's been praying and she's been worshiping in the temple for decades. And because of her faithfulness, now at an old age, she is privileged to look upon the Messiah who's being held in Simeon's arms. Look at verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, in other words... This is at the same time that Mary and Joseph encountered Simeon. So they're all together. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She becomes one of the first witnesses for Jesus, one of the first evangelizers. This baby's the one we've been waiting for. Here's redemption. This is, this is the Messiah. In his commentary on Luke, Phil Riken says this. You can read this on the screen. He says, there was a time when Anna was a young virgin. In those days, she served God by getting to know him and by preserving her purity. When she got married, she served God primarily by loving and helping her husband. But after only seven years of marriage, God called her to be a widow. He released her from the duty of caring for her family so that she could live in single-hearted devotion to him.
And I, I think there's something subtle going on here as Luke is related. Like, why this lady? Why are we hearing about this? Why is this even significant? And I think what Luke is telling us here, right after that ominous prophecy about Jesus from Simeon, he shows us this aged woman, Anna, who has faithfully served the Lord, and she comes and gives thanks to Jesus, recognizing God's plan of redemption. So in other words, there are some who rise and some who fall in Israel. Let me show you an example right away of somebody who rises in Israel as a result of the coming of the Messiah. Her name's Anna. So some in Israel will embrace the Messiah. Here's the first example of that. And we know throughout Luke, all the way to the end, we have plenty of examples of the fall of Israel, those who reject. We have some who rise, some who fall. You know what? We have Gentiles in our day, don't we now? Some who rise, some who fall, some whom Jesus is a stumbling stone, and others he's the rock of salvation. And that continues even to our day. This is the polarizing baby Jesus. And I think it's a good reminder too, a woman at the end of this infancy narrative, because Jesus didn't just come to save men. He also came to save women. It's a good spot for an amen, ladies of Harvest the Gator. And he didn't just come to, serve, come to save young people, the shepherds. He also came to save older people, male and female. He didn't just come to save Jews. He also came to save Gentiles. Some will reject him. Some will embrace him by faith. And this is the saving work of Jesus Christ. And the angels were right. The angels declaring that message to the shepherds were right. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Do you have peace, Harvest Decatur? Do you have peace with the God of the universe? Don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus came and he gives peace to everybody. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus came to polarize. And those who put their faith in him have peace with God, and those who don't, do not. Do you have peace with God? I'll close with this, and then we'll take communion. I heard Alistair Begg say once that you know, the message of the gospel in our Pursuit of peace can basically be discerned from two Beatles songs, okay? The first song is, help, I need somebody. Help, I need somebody, right? These are the good Beatles songs, the old ones. And the other song is, we can work it out. We can work it out. 
So, peace. How do we find peace with God? Can we work it out? Can we figure it out? Can we work it out on our own? Find a way to find peace in our lives, peace in our world, peace with God. We can work it out. Can we work it out? Can we work it out? Can we figure it out? Can we save ourselves? Or is it help? I need somebody. I need a savior. I need someone to pay for my sins. I need somebody to do something for me that I can't do for myself. I'm sure you can guess which Beatles song Alistair Begg chose. I'm sure you can guess which one I'm choosing. The truth of the matter, Harvest of Kidder, is you can't work it out. You can't find peace on your own. The truth is we do need somebody. And that's why the God of the universe 2,000 years ago sent his own son to come to this world to take on human flesh, to die on the cross for our sins so that you might have peace. So let me ask again, do you have peace? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ, this, this baby born and then later the one who died for your sins and rose from the dead? Look, it's Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. It's December 26th, 2021. I hope you have peace with Christ. I hope you have peace. This Christmas, if not, hey, let today be a day of salvation for you. Why not? Why not start 2022 off on the right foot? And put your faith in the God who sent his son to die for your sins. Let's pray together. Pray with me. Let's just bow our heads, all of us in this room. We're going to take communion, but let's not be in a hurry. Everybody in this room listening right now, everybody online as well listening. The Bible says clearly that salvation is not something you work towards. Salvation is a work of grace. It's accomplished already for you by Jesus Christ and you put your faith in what he's done, not in what you do. And if you haven't done that before, you can do that now. You can admit your sinfulness before a holy God. And it's just that simple. Lord, I'm a sinner. I've broken your law. I can't save myself. I put my faith in Christ. The baby that was born into this world, God in the flesh, who died on the cross for my sins. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. You can do that right now.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for the suffering that you endured for our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that you were obedient to what God the Father asked you to do. We thank you that Simeon's prophecy concerning you came true. Even though it divided many, even though it involved great suffering for you and for those close to you. Lord, we're here this morning in your church celebrating at Christmas your birth, but also as we take communion, celebrating the atonement for our sins, your death. So, Lord, we worship you now. We love you. We ask you to be present with us now as we remember you through these communion elements that we take. The bread that symbolizes your body broken for our sin, this cup that symbolizes your blood shed for our sins. Lord, bless this time of remembrance, we pray. We pray in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.